Welcome to the Performax podcast. This is uh, Aaron, owner of Performax. I'm here today with our vice president, Derek. How are you doing today, Derek? Awesome, man. I'm excited for today because I think it's going to be a little change of gears. We'll definitely be talking some product, but some uh, bodybuilding and some cool stuff too, like that. Yeah, exactly. We have a pretty cool guest on. Um, There'll be a little bit of a change of pace for us, so that's exciting. Um, But getting into kind of the news as we do as our first segment uh, there's actually a lot going on for Performax now that we're in 2020. Happily, um, 2020 ha- I don't think 2021 hasn't quite uh, been the big change I think we we're all hoping for. Uh, but of course, you know I don't think the new year is like a light switch. So hopefully, we're just moving in the right direction. But um, as we've talked about, we do have a new Nootropamax powder coming out in uh, around March. Along with that Nootropamax powder, we're actually going to be doing some tweaks to quite a few formulas. And I don't really want to let the cat out of the bag, but I guess the people really listening to this podcast are probably pretty uh, pretty close fans you know, to Performax. So what we will say is we will be doing a full rebrand as well. So we're talking to rebrand, updated products, the new Nootropamax, limited editions, uh, and potentially even some new faces in the brand. So we're really, really excited uh, for 2021. We think this is going to be a really big year for Performax. Really just make up for all that lost time that we uh, that we had in 2020. Yeah, a lot of that was going to be hush-hush, but you did let the cat out of the bag. So <laughs> Well, it's funny too because I no. <laughs> kind of didn't want to say anything, but then I thought, you know, the people that are listening, this, you know, they're, they're pretty close to the brand, and so I think they deserve to know. Um, yeah. And on the, other, right. on the other hand, too, we're probably going to start letting the cat out of the bag uh, in the next two weeks anyway to the general public. So that just gives our mm-hmm. our, uh, our core listeners a little bit of a tidbit of a exclusive release before we really let the public know. <laughs> um, anything, Derek, do you want to uh, add or get into in terms of news um, before we get into our guest? No, oh, well, you trumped anything I would have said. So, <laughs> what about um, what uh, about that new partnership you just secured? Oh well, yeah, High Health will be um, on their website probably within the week. Definitely by the end of the month, I'm sure you can definitely be finding our products now at HighHealth.com. Uh, they're a great partner in Arizona, and uh, you know somebody that was affected by all the shutdowns and stuff, but they've just in stride, kept the business strong and just adjusted, which is what most people needed to be doing anyway in any, you know, form of business. Um, so we're very happy to be part of their business now as well. Yeah. So just as a little um, background information, High Health has uh, 36 stores. So they were um, a pretty significant uh, um, store chain around the Arizona area. Obviously, all retail got hit really hard, and they were able to pivot and transfer to mostly online, and they've basically maintained almost that full customer base. So um, like Derek said, we'll be working with them. We're one of, I think, two or maybe three sports nutrition brands, Um, so we're really excited to partner with them. They have um, great prices, great customer service, fast shipping times, so that's a pretty big deal for us and definitely happy to, to have that new partnership in place. For sure. Um, well, yeah, let's just get right into it. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Trey Hodge. Uh, Trey's been on the team for, shoot, probably about six years now, I'd say, pretty much right from the beginning. 
Um, and I think we're only on episode 12 or maybe even 10. So it was a good time to, to finally get Trey on the podcast. How are you doing, Trey? I'm doing great. How about you, buddy? Not too bad. Not too bad. Just happy to be in the new year. How about you? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Like you said, you know, it wasn't necessarily probably the light switch that we're all hoping for, but I mean, it's one of those things I think it's going to, it's going to get a little bit better as it goes along. Yeah. How has, um, how has it affected your chiropractic business, if at all? Uh, honestly, uh, it's weird as it may sound like my chiropractic business actually went up this year. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of it too is, you know, I know my demographics, a lot of my clients are tend to be a little bit, um, between the ages of like the late teen to early fifties. So I don't feel like some of them were as, um, I guess, scared with, you know, being out, being exposed as much as a lot of the older community. Um, cause I have a buddy of mine whose practice is much more, more of an older clientele. And of course he got affected. Uh, but for me and I, it's actually been a pretty, pretty good year. I mean, if anything, I say in terms of like, of course, like my competitive clients and, you know, with bodybuilding kind of competing that way. Uh, it changed some. Uh, didn't have as much people or many people competing this year as I usually would, but I did have a lot more in terms of like lifestyle-based clients uh, and, and than I ever had too. So it's for me, it, it did not. Luckily and thankfully, didn't get hit too hard with it. So I feel blessed at least survive 2020 without having to do too much of like scrambling. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still, like I said, I'm still kicking pretty strong with everything. You know, I'll hopefully be opening up another office within the next month, month and a half. So, uh, wow. yeah, so everything's actually been looking pretty good. So, How much do you think the focus on general health maybe played into that? Because you got to think the average pub, you know, the average person, the general public probably didn't really think about their immune health or anything like that and um obviously i think this was a huge wake-up call for a lot of just generally unhealthy people that just weren't really taking it serious how do you Mm -hmm. think that do you think that made an effect because like you said bringing on more lifestyle clients basically what that sounds like to me is just general people that want to be healthier and in shape and look better do you think this uh focus on immune function and staying healthy played played a role in your increase in clients uh, no doubt. I mean, I think that was the biggest thing. I think people are more fearful of just their own general health than far as like even long term um, and became more self-aware. And I think people are willing to want to at least educate themselves more on it. Um, you know, I have even my general patients who come in as chiropractic patients ask more questions. And it's, you know, in regards of health, nutrition and things like that or even recommendations for, you know, some of, you know, some of the issues that they might be seeing themselves. So it's, it's, in a sense, I think this has became a lot more for even for most people just to be, you know, more top priority, of health, you know, than ever before. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. Um, so yeah, as we were talking about, you've been on the team for quite a while and I know you quite mm-hmm. well. Um, but I know Derek and you have had a little bit less of interactions. I know you guys uh, connected back at, I think, about Olympia two years ago. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to let Derek kind of pick your brain, ask some of the questions he might have, just having a little bit less background information on you. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, that I remember that day. I, I don't know if we got to connect too much because I know Charles was in the middle of uh, going from prejudging to the night show and 
I know you're, you're obviously very focused on that, but um, I'm actually curious. I mean, so you're obviously a doctor in chiropractics. You know, have you always had the bodybuilding interest or is that something that kind of was like gradually like how, how did you get interested in bodybuilding when clearly you were very like astute and did a lot of schooling and something for a career? Is this something you've just always done on the side or like what drew you to this? Um, honestly, I mean, I was always drawn to bodybuilding since I was 18. Um, it was always kind of had a knack for it as far as wanting to be involved as far as the nutritional aspect, the training. I've been training since I was even 13 years old, so I've always had that in my background. Uh, the bodybuilding, as far as in terms of like being a coach or as a business, uh, that didn't really come into effect till even I might have been, I've probably been in practice as a chiropractor for like four or five years, and then uh, just really started working with a few friends of mine who were, you know, training with me in the gym, who needed help with their diets. And, you know, they knew I was competing at the time. So it was almost like I was kind of giving them guidance too at the same time as a coach, uh, but not knowingly doing it. And um, I think that just opened that door more um, to, to do that. And because I never thought that I would ever be a bodybuilding coach. Never thought I would be as treated as a business aspect. I've always thought I'd be only doing chiropractic my whole life. That's all. I, that's all I was planning on doing. Is what I invested my, you know, time in school and the you know, money for. It. So this really came out of like really nowhere, and you know, and it developed more until what I didn't think it would be. Because uh, and even the beginnings when I was having a few clients here and there wasn't a, you know, I might have like five or six clients at a time. And even wasn't charging that much then, uh, didn't, you know, didn't view as a big deal. And then I think after I started, you know, getting more clients that had like bigger names and of course I have the more referral bases, then it, it changed the whole dynamic to where at one point in time, I'll say like the bodybuilding, uh, as far as coaching for me was even bigger than the chiropractic side. That's what uh, I was wondering, your balance on that. I actually have a follow-up question then based on what you just said, because in this industry now on the bodybuilding side, you know, there's a ton of guys and girls out there that do one show and, hey, I'm, I'm offering services now. Yeah. You know, when did, when did you really realize that you had the knowledge to teach someone and actually be beneficial to their own career in bodybuilding? You know, I think it was when I started having a few, like, I had a few people competing in the shows together. Like, it might be, like, two or three clients competing in the show. And seeing them do really well, and then also seeing the amount of change they, they had during that time with me. And I think that instilled a little bit more, you know, confidence in what I knew um, through my years of experience. And, like, I always tell even my clients, you know, I'm always learning more and more as I go, too. So, I've never, I never will say I've like learned my maths or I've learned mm -hmm. all I've learned. I'm always learning because everybody's different. I got, you know, different people with different situations. Um, and, you know, another thing too is like, even for me back then, I was, of course, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 23 years old. So a lot of my clients uh, over the years have been a lot of people who are diabetic themselves too, who want to compete. Uh, and that can be tricky for, you know, a lot of different coaches, but I guess that's kind of been more of my, uh, forte, I guess with a lot of people is coming in contact me because I do have the experience in that and trying to, you know, stabilize blood sugar levels as well as trying to be active in a bodybuilding world too. So I'm sure Slim Max goes well in your, your diet protocols. Yeah. Then. <laughs> you know, actually, you know, it's, it's this, you know, when we, well, Slim Max came out and I remember that was the introduction to a lot of my, you know, people who were 
currently at the time, you know, diabetics and stuff too. And, you know, they did notice, and even by the clients I had that were non-diabetics, uh, they noticed a huge difference in terms of their appetite and not having the, even the craving for, you know, sugar-based, you know, foods as much. Um, so it's, it's funny. It's like one of those products that really, even on a diabetic, non-diabetic spectrum still did really well with a lot of my clients. Well, yeah, I, if I was gonna say, if I remember correctly, pretty much right when we brought it out, um, I mean, it, it, like, well, I guess to backtrack a little bit, the idea of Slim Max and the idea of, you know, what it's trying to accomplish, I think could be looked at as kind of like, uh, um, like placebo, like, oh, that is, you know, could a, could a nutritional supplement really, uh, impact insulin levels really help uh, remove glucose from the blood. Really increase increase glycogen storage. Like, d would it really have that true effect, or is this just another gimmick? And I remember when we first came out with it, I believe you were you did a, yeah tested yeah you yeah. did some blood glucose testing with controlled mm -hmm. uh, meals and stuff like that. Do you remember uh, the results or, or what you got yeah, from actually, doing all that testing? Um, because even with me, I'm type one, so I'm on two different types of insulin. I'm on Lantus, which is more of a slow-releasing insulin that I take twice a day. And I'm on uh, Novolog, which is fast acting. And I remember the Lantus, I was at the time, I was 20 units twice a day. Uh, I ended up cutting it down to 10 units twice a day because I started noticing my blood sugar levels were dropping. Even my fasting was dropping already. And then uh, usually I would account for... Uh, Per like say a gram of carb ingested, I would usually do 15 unit or, or per 15 grams of carbs, I would do one unit of Novolog. Well, I had to cut it back down to 10 grams for one unit because my blood sugar was actually dropping lower. So it was like at the end, I think over a two week period, it was pretty much I was averaging. I went from doing about 60 units of Novolog a day to almost like 40, and that's the same diet everything and then lantis dropped it from doing 40 a day to 20 a day. so uh, you know for me of course cost wise i mean of course it's more expensive to buy insulin than slim max <laughs> so it, <laughs> definitely, it, de it definitely helped the budget out for me over a month time span um so yeah i, I did you know i did it and i kept it, i kept slim max in my you know routine for such a long time but it, it did make a difference and that's like i said you know did the same base diet as i normally follow so that was a true test for me and i was testing my blood sugar levels fasted uh, post-workout and then usually before I go to bed, right before I go to bed, I'll test those off. And those are to me, it's kind of the way, the ones I really just showed more and just kept up with more just a track. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that, that's amazing that, it, uh, that it has that profound of an effect and something that you can actually test and, uh, and, um, you know, kind of prove, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Cause just so many supplements on the market and even some of these glucose disposal agents, just like Slidmax, they're just so half-assed. The formulas are just thrown together. There's no real thought that goes into it. And um, I'm just happy to to see, you know, our formulas kind of substantiated uh, by actual blood testing. Um, so that, mm -hmm. that's obviously really, really cool to hear. Um, jumping back when we were talking about, you know, you starting out as a chiropractor, I know, I believe you and your dad were also – or maybe your whole family was also into martial arts uh, prior, yeah, yeah, as yeah. you were young. I have a question about that, just mm -hmm. just as my own kind of life experience. My father was really into into martial arts uh, when he was young. He actually ended up owning three different uh, like kung fu schools. 
and Almost. yeah, he went from that right into into uh, um, becoming a chiropractor. And I guess what he learned during his martial arts was, I, I guess they call it traditional bone setting. And he was mm-hmm. taught bone setting, you know, by one of his, you know, masters or senseis. And then that's what actually got him interested in going into chiropractic, chiropractic work. And, you know, he explained it to me. It was, hey, I learned how to break people down. I now wanted to learn how to put them back together. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have a similar experience? Did that, did martial arts play a role in your idea of, now wanting to go back and help people and heal people because you maybe knew how to hurt people. You know what I mean? If, does that make sense? <laughs> Actually, it's funny you kind of because your dad has similar backgrounds. My dad, uh, my dad was in the martial arts ever since. You know, he grew up into it as well. Uh, but he did the same thing. He got into acupuncture, uh, acupressure, uh, and a colleague of his is also a chiropractor who was also involved in martial arts and was kind of helping along with go ahead and going to school with it. And that was his thing too. And he used to actually teach seminars where it would be a martial arts seminar, uh, you know, you know, two day martial arts seminar. And then the third final day was healing arts. So it's kind of like, Hey, we break the body down. Let's, let's, you know, learn to like heal it back up, you know? And so he's, he did that for quite a few years. And I think being, being around as a kid, it did influence me to want to do that too, as well. Um, you know, I have my own personal story, of kind of my involvement in chiropractic when I would play football. But I think always being around my father, he did like a lot of that stuff that was very similar, that holistic type of approach and trying to do all you can to like support and heal the body. Uh, that was a definitely a huge influence and impact for me um, just being around that for so many years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I wonder, you know, for myself, if that could be a reason why, you know, supplements it, uh, kind of intrigued me. Uh, just because as I grew up, we were uh, very much into like traditional Chinese medicine. Like we wouldn't use you know Advil or Tylenol or anything like that. We you know used these uh, traditional Chinese formulas. Um, you know because TCM is still really popular in China, and you obviously can buy a lot of those types of products. And so that you know that idea, I think of of natural herbs and extracts uh, being able to have an actual measurable impact is probably one of the reasons that led me to even want to look into dietary supplements and now obviously dietary supplements is especially sports nutrition is is completely different realm but i think the ideas are the same you know trying to find natural ways to increase performance and kind of heal the body and recover um versus going the more you know western side of uh more synthetics and drugs and things like that yeah i mean i think and I think it's like even now, you know, you, you get that out there in the market where, of course, it, w- it used to be more synthetics. Now it's going back to more holistic, you know, uh, especially with all the you know COVID stuff of this year. I think people are getting more of a holistic mindset of trying to better support their immune system the best way they can uh, to prevent them from either getting position to be sick or to be weakened enough to get sick. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um Jumping back now to you as a coach, this was an interesting question I had. Do you have a coach? Like you said, you're, you're always trying to learn. Do you have a coach in the bodybuilding industry that you look up to or that you admire or maybe you, know, maybe, maybe you feel like you're on the same level as them, but you just think they do a really good job? Is there someone in the industry that you really kind of look up to? And obviously, there's a lot of quote-unquote coaches and then there seems to be some solid ones that have kind of held the test of time you know is there anybody that you kind of look up to in that regard 
Um, you know, I've, I've met so many different, uh, you know, coaches and stuff. And I think, uh, you know, I always say there's, there's, there's those ones that you look up to. And then there's those ones that you might conversate more with in terms of just, and, and it can be talking about, uh, it can be nutrition based, whatever. And they, you know, it's like going back and forth. Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for, uh, actually it's a, he used to be a client of mine, but he's a coach too. Um, uh, I don't know. You've probably seen him like Ty Woosley, um, I have a ton of respect for him just because we've known each other for about four years now. Um, you know, he does really well with his clients stuff. And he's one of those guys that we always, you know, we always keep in contact. We always communicate back and forth. Um, so it's funny. He, you know, I feel like even though he was, you know, I was his coach at one time, I still learned a lot from him too. Uh, even as, even as a client and that aspect, you know, I think that's the thing is because we all share different experiences with different clients. So you, you always want to have a different have say a different situation that you know you maybe never thought of or maybe this is just a just a different you know uh, blueprint to, to actually do for that client so i feel like i've learned a lot with him and um over the years and just and just like i said just us uh, staying in contact a lot that that's made a difference um and there, I mean, there's a lot of coaches big names out there that i have a lot of respect for uh i i, I can't say i've learned from them because i probably haven't communicated that much with them um, i'm usually kind of to myself a lot of times and you know, but I'm always good about like wanting to learn more. Uh, you know, and mine could be more experience based, or it could be just me reading up on you know newer things these days and just kind of getting an idea of uh, what's out there more so. So, is there any coaches that you've you felt are just complete fakes? Oh, uh, you know <laughs> that that you're that you're willing that you're willing to call out right here today, Trey. You know, I, I mean, to, to, be, to, to be honest, like, I would never want to just, like, put out there. So, I mean, I could say, like, someone's maybe I've heard things. And, it, honestly, it's not even them as probably sometimes as much as a coach. Maybe it's just more as a person mm-hmm. and communication and stuff. And I think where a lot of coaches who could be these big bang coaches that could be out there, and a lot of times where maybe they drop the ball with a lot of clients is just the communication part. Um, there's a lot of coaches out there who do not do phone calls, who do not do, uh, you know, who would not be willing to do like a Skype or, you know, whatever it may be with a client. Um, they only do via email. That's it. Um, and for the amount of money that some of these, you know, some of these people pay, uh, I do feel that that's a disservice to them because of course, as coaches, we are teachers, we are educators. So, you know, we should be willing to take the time to educate our clients, to better learn themselves, to understand the process, to understand, you know, the whys, you know, not for the reasons behind what we do. Uh, not just because, hey, you take the red pill, the blue pill, you eat this and call it a day and that's it. And that's all you need to know. Um, so I think some kind of get that sense of maybe that entitlement to be that way. Um I never want to be that way for myself. And I never want to also overextend myself where I'm taking on too many clients at the same time. And I think that's what happens to a lot. of. I think the coaches that I say that have more than, you know, 150, 200 clients, uh, those are the ones I don't validate as much because I don't feel like there's no way you can really keep up with that. You know, yeah, yeah. and expect everybody to get the equal amount of time. And what happens is you're, your elites or your star athletes end up getting the majority of the time and they're probably not paying you as much either. But then you got someone here who's paying full price for getting a few minutes, maybe a week of your time. Yeah. So I think that's the unfair policy of that. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and um, yeah, I think I think to your point when when you're looking for a coach, that needs to be taken into account only because I think, like you said, you know, you could be a coach with you know a top five you know Open Olympia competitor, and then everybody comes to you thinking that you have this this secret sauce, this this magical equation. And in reality, if if that coach is unwilling to to get on the phone with you, really learn your body, learn the way that you react, you're they don't have a secret sauce. You know what I mean? Like no coach has yeah. some magical thing that they're gonna tell you, like you said, take the red pill and eat this meal and now you're you're winning shows. Um yeah. and I think that's where, you know, a lot of these people kind of probably maybe get misled or just get let down because they're getting a coach not for the attention and the 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 detail that that coach is going to give but more just oh that coach has coached this person so they must be amazing and i want to figure out what their formula is and i think those are the the people that probably end up getting let down because they get their one email a week and they get their you know phone call you know once a, a month or two um, yeah, I think that probably needs to be taken into account whenever you're trying to find a good coach. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, actually, and that's one thing I've kind of done a lot more with a lot of clients, especially new clients who are, you know, kind of, you know, you're shopping for a coach and stuff. And I'll, I'll offer, I'll say, hey, well, you know, if you want us up time to talk, uh, we can talk over your phone. Sometimes it's easier to ask me questions that way. That way, uh, whatever you have question on you can ask me at that point and i can do you know all i can to make sure that you know best answer and so that's why i've done a lot lately more with a lot of new clients and i feel i feel like they feel a little bit more supported from the beginning that way versus you know sending an email back and forth and then okay well i guess i'm gonna sign up for this plan and that's it and never speak to them ever through the phone or anything through the whole process yeah yeah um, exactly so but um you know, yeah i mean this sure. i think oh, wait. No, continue. You finish. Uh, no, I mean, I was just saying, I, I think I have a lot of respect for the coaches that do reach out. Uh, there's actually another coach I, and, you know, I, I didn't mention his name, but he's a, he's a guy I really respect. He's a super, super nice guy, very interactive with his clients. I think what makes me respect him the most is he does a lot with his clients uh, in terms of being present, even at shows and things. Uh, his name's Dave, but he's with uh, his uh, team's underrated muscle. Um, he's one of those guys that goes, I feel like above and beyond. And, um, if anything, I feel like I look up to him trying to be kind of like close to what he does with his clients in terms of interaction. Um, you know, I mean, he's, he definitely is always trying to support his clients, even when he's not there. And, uh, and you can definitely, you definitely tell that with, if you ever get a chance to look at his, uh, his page, look at his clients, he's got really good quality clients and you tell his clients really respect too because they, they're always in support for him too as well yeah it's uh it's pretty funny because uh earlier back in my day when i actually did compete uh, i was one of those guys that even though i said oh they do a couple shows and then they they're, they want to be trainers well i did that <laughs> we had a squad and uh we i mean my buddy of mine i i handled all the diets and uh the gear protocols or supplement protocols mm-hmm. and he did all the training and uh, i remember and it was all npc you know, guys and girls. I remember it's a lot to keep up with. We only got up to maybe 12, 15 people. And yeah. uh, it, it, t- it takes a lot of time and effort. But, you know, I imagine I wasn't leading anybody as quality as you would have been able to. But I know you also train a lot of pros. Is there any difference between training like professionals, like IFBBs or WBFFs compared to maybe the amateur side? 
Um, I wouldn't say there's a difference in terms of just the way the train, but just realizing that the stage quality is different. Um, <laughs> expectations are different. Uh, you know, I, I think I expect more from my pro level athletes, but I have to admit sometimes my, you know, my amateurs are some of the best, you know, in terms of just what they do, their ethics, work ethic. Uh, I think sometimes my pro athletes, I could say, are so gifted genetically that they've been able to do, you know, do what they do um, a little bit easier than some of my clients who are on the amateur level who have to really bust their, you know, bust their butt even more, uh, mm-hmm. even be more at 100% with what they do. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, and, I, and I've been, honestly, I've been, been blessed too to have very good quality people in, in my circle and in my team and stuff. And I, you know, the, the ones, even my pros have been like great uh, overall for what, you know, because trust me, you hear stories. And I hear stories all the time uh, with different coaches, with different pro athletes. And sometimes I'm thinking, oh, well, gosh, you know, I'm glad I dodged a bullet like that. You know, um, you know, that happens. But I mean, I, I, I really try to treat, you know, all my clients usually the same. Um, and sometimes I say, you know, even as you know, having your pro athletes for so long, uh, you know, you start, you know, start saying, okay, you know what, you know, my amateur athletes, the ones I've got have been like really great clients. And I see like, you know, if they were a pro, they have that genetics as, you know, this person is, uh, they could go so far too, you know? So. Do you, do you find there's, uh, tough egos in the pro ranks? Do you find egos are hard to deal with, with certain pros? It, you know what? It, I say that, and, you know, it's sometimes I'm more hesitant to take on a pro client uh, sometimes because of that. Because I can tell from the first conversation with even a pro athlete if it's going to work or not. And sometimes I would, uh, I've, I've been the person too to also uh, refer them to some other person that might fit them best versus me because of that. Uh, if I feel like there's going to be a little bit of like an ego thing or something, like I've, I've had, you know, pro clients contact me and you know, say, hey, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is who I am. This is kind of like giving me their whole resume, like how many years they're competing, uh, what they've done, what shows they've won. And they're pretty much putting it out there that, hey, like I'm, you know, like I'm a top elite athlete for you. Uh, so what you going to do for me? So it's like, well, if, that, if that's the attitude, then I'm like, oh, you know, I'm good. You know, I don't, I don't have to have that person's client. And I'll probably say, hey, you know what, you might, you know, you might be best fit with so-and-so else that might be closer to you, might adhere to what you want as a coach, uh, and I might not be the best fit. So do you find that they're laying out their resume is basically like, train me for free because you're going to get the the publicity of being my trainer? Is that kind of what they're trying to lay out there? Yeah, you know, that's, I've, I've had that that's layout. And I've had, I mean, I've had some go as far as wanting me to pay them. To be a client. <laughs> so that's that's trust me that was an interesting scenario too when i had someone uh tell like those telemedics and i was i was kind of like at the same time I was, I was just i was just so interested in what they had to say i just let them keep talking <laughs> you know and they, and they i mean they literally were you know they talked for about 30 minutes on themselves and i was like wow was like, this is how it's going to go with this person i was like well you know i was thinking i was like well if they could find someone that can you know pay them per month just to be a client I'm, I'm more power to them. Man. Go for it, man. I mean, you know, if you can find that, great. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold you back from it if you can't. So yeah, interesting. I, I, I assumed that trying to get free uh, training was a, a ploy, but I've never, never thought that they would ask to be paid to be trained. 
No, no, seriously. I mean, and then uh, the same the same person also was talking about uh, uh, <laughs> like as a coach sponsoring them for shows, meaning paying their way to compete too. So you're you're paying them maybe a monthly salary that they they want, and you're paying to uh, for them to compete. Do you think that happens? Um, I do believe certain athletes, uh, and it could be maybe the relationship with the coach and the coach realizing that, Hey, you know, this athlete's going to probably gain me 20, 30 clients. If they do, if they win this show or do really well, I wouldn't say that they're actually paying an athlete, but I'm sure they're covering their costs, you know, in terms of like across the board, uh, it could be on the, you know, supplement protocol. It could be on travel expenses, you know, those things. Um, so I'm sure that happens a lot now. Of course, if athletes get paid a salary through that person, I'm not sure about that, but I'm sure the others are. are so then, so then, then the question becomes: Does that is that person even caring who their coach is, or the information they're getting from their coach, or are they literally just looking for someone to cover their bills? I, I think the respect is kind of like it's, it's blurred a little bit because, of course, I don't think they have probably the respect as a coach. Uh, they respect that the money is, you know, covering what they can do, you know. Yeah. So it's it's more of a convenience. It's not it's not okay. Well, this person is such a great great coach, and I respect what they do and they, their knowledge or anything. Because I, I pretty much promise you, the athlete's probably not 100 doing the plan they're supposed to eat. That's what I was gonna say. Because if you really, no. if you really value that coach and thought that that coach is the person that's gonna be able to take you to the next level, you probably also wouldn't be in the position to then ask them to pay pay you too. Yeah, and that's the thing. So it's like it's like one of those things where you like I always say like, hey, I'm offering chiropractic services, and I have like uh, say a family member or friend comes in the office and expects you to give them a a pro bono program or whatever. You know, it's like if you, if you do it the respect that they have for what you do drops automatically. Yeah. There's no value. There's no value. So of course, if someone's, you know, either not having to pay for coaching and stuff, or they're getting training for free, or they're getting supplements or supplement protocols for free, uh, they probably lose the respect for you as a coach and you as, you know, as an individual. So yeah, they're not going to adhere to anything that you say at, you know, hundred percent. Yeah. So. so then, so then there is even some loss of integrity probably on the coach side because the coach must know that, and then they're looking at it strictly as a advertising and promotional fee. Then basically, yeah, and I think so, that's what to justify what they're doing on their end. So it's it's looking at okay, what well, most me, you know? Yeah. So it's it, there. There's justification for it, but at the same time, I mean, that person should be promoting you just because you're putting them in a position to do to do more to do better. Um, I want to see. I, I wonder if I wonder if that goes on with some of these coaches that also have brands, where mm-hmm. you start to wonder, like, is this is he really his coach, or is he is he quote unquote his coach, but also just helps promote you know their brand, so to speak. Well, now there's you know there's those cases where I'd say, for instance, the coaches invested through like a company, and of course they're sponsoring their own athlete within that company, and of course it helps the athlete out indirectly you know it does help the coach out if the athletes supporting the brand too yeah uh, now that's that's now that's more common i mean and that's that's and i could see the justification more so at that because of course it is it, it is you know he is a coach but also this is his company so yeah it's 
promoting the company within, you know, his, you know, coaching as far as his client too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if there's like a, like a, like that coach owned a supplement company, it almost comes off mm-hmm. as, it almost comes off as like a trade basically. Yeah. Like yeah. I'll, I'll that, you promote my supplement company and I'll train you for free. Yeah. I can understand that. You yeah. know, I can understand that. Cause that, that could be a, that's a bigger scale, you know, that's yeah. a bigger scale. And of course that could be bringing a lot more revenue for that coach too at the end. I mean, that coach could be getting thousands and thousands of dollars more per year from that. Yeah. So yeah, it, it just, it would just, it just by it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a slightly different scenario. Yeah. <clears throat> um, what you got, Derek? I know you got more over there. Well, actually, yeah, I'm, um, curious. So obviously, you know, you being with Performax and stuff, but the way that the bodybuilding industry is, there's obviously gear and things like that involved. Like, how do you really plug and play the Performax products into your athletes' protocols? You know, I know a lot of them are natural as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, nowadays it's, uh, you never know. So, <laughs> like, how do you really structure the Performax products in your protocol for your athletes? Or or let, me, let, let me double down kind of on that question too, Derek, not to just to dis- detract from it but maybe position it a little bit differently the idea that we know a lot of the ifbb right are on some level of performance enhancing drugs and to whatever Mm -hmm. that could be um and then you get all these these people who go well they don't take supplements supplements don't help it's all steroids you know and that's like the big thing you see everywhere and it and to me it's it's kind of you know kind of blows my mind like so you don't think that they would ever take amino acids or you don't think they would ever need a protein powder. Like, you know, one doesn't, the one doesn't discredit the other, so to speak. And, um, I just wanted to kind of get your perspective on that, on how do you see dietary supplements involved in some of these athletes? Um, are they really using these products? Does it really aid and add a benefit? And I, and I don't think any supplement company, us included, would ever say that, anything that we've put out is what makes you know any bodybuilder look like a bodybuilder it's the time it's the years of training it's the genetics it's the eating it's the everything but supplements are just that they're to supplement the that at last five percent you know get that little bit of extra protein to hit your daily requirements get those you know mm-hmm. aminos so you're not going to a catabolic state um so to completely discredit those i think is more or less kind of like the question like are these pros really using supplements and are they really getting benefits from them? Or is the general public right? Is the supplements completely useless and, you know, it's more of the PEDs and everything. I'll say the, you know, even how I design like my you know plans with a lot of my clients too, is we use say, for instance, performance lab products as support supplements, uh, support meaning around us in general, as far as daily, uh, you know, when it comes to like say EA, you know, max, you know, my, you know, my clients use that as a support supplement with the workout, you know, uh, the Vasomax, the, you know, as far as the pre-workout that we use that as a support supplement, meaning it's going to help justify what they can actually accomplish probably also within that workout too. You know, you got people who, you know, have crazy schedules, days and stuff. And a lot of times, you know, they, they're not, you know, even if they're taking these enhanced supplements, uh, they're not going to actually instill them with sometimes the ability to be able to do what they do within a workout itself or to recover supplements too. So, you know, a lot of these you know, supplements that we are using outside of these enhanced supplements is actually support for us for even a more of a long-term standpoint. Um, you know, and I say, because I do have a pretty 
a wide array of clientele. So, you know, I would say a small percentage of my clients are those competing in a bodybuilding realm. A lot of my clients are, you know, general health. Uh, some of them are in sometimes even like things as CrossFit, uh, powerlifting, you know, since I do a lot with nutrition on those aspects. Uh, you know, and the product themselves, of course, a lot of their, you know, their base products is aminos. It's uh, a pre-workout, which I'm usually a big fan of Vaso because, of course, it doesn't have any stems in it uh, for me because, you know, with my, you know, myself, I don't really do a lot of uh, caffeine or anything for myself. Uh, and then, you know, I have some that, of course, say, hey, you know what? Give me all the caffeine you want. So we might be Hypermax and Oxymax for a lot of them, too. Uh, I know a lot of my female athletes, even uh, non-bodybuilding, uh, would say they they do a lot more with like the hypermax for them, and they feel like that helps them with their training. So, like I said, these to me are supplements I always considered to be in that support realm too. That I keep it, you know, that those are the one things that is sustainable for them throughout like a year that they can keep to stay in, you know, in their supplement circle, versus the like, other ones like the enhanced supplements that are periodic supplements you know that you use to kind of like boost a little bit more to add a little bit more of that edge so got it okay yeah and i mean that's that's exactly how i always envisioned it that everything has its place and by no mm -hmm. means are we saying you know you take eaminomax and you're gonna look like a pro bodybuilder but that also doesn't yeah. mean pro bodybuilders wouldn't use eaminomax yeah and actually yeah i mean the majority of them do you know the majority are going to use some type of amino base into their you know because they know the importance of that and what they sometimes are not going to have or what they're going to be lacking just in the general diet too yeah yeah exactly cool um well i know we have three i believe we have three questions uh from team performax which is our ambassador program so we basically told mm -hmm. them that you're going to be on uh on the podcast and i believe they have some questions for you do you have those derek i do Okay. Um, so, well, this will kind of piggyback, I guess, what we just went over. But uh, Joshua in Indiana wants to know which Performax product you recommend the most, I guess, out of all of them. Uh, I say if most of like the eating thing I recommend as far as my plans are usually it's always EA Minimax. I think that's just universal, uh, you know, both all like terms of life in terms of athletes, whether you're a lifestyle or anything. I think that's just the biggest one that I'd usually like to implement more than, than, any, than all of them. And where, I love where, that where do you, you, where are you personally utilizing that for your clients? Is it, you know, during cardio, during your workout, in between meals? Is it just during the day? I mean, when, uh, when are you using it the most with your clients? A majority of the time it's during workout. Um, I do have some that's based on their schedules. We might have it to where it might be some during the day. Um, and then sometimes some, but majority of the time it's usually during workout. Got it. Okay. Do you ever add Do you ever have anybody add carbs? To their EMU max? Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes I've I've been using a little bit more with apple juice. <laughs> Some, Got it. So I, I I like using juice base. So usually I have to mix that. <laughs> and actually, it's not a bad combo for a lot of my clients to actually enjoy it. So do you do you find fructose uh, is an okay carb to have during workout? Do you think that is utilized? Because I know a lot of uh, in the supplement industry they're looking for you know like high molecular weight, fast digesting carbs. Um, hmm. You know, do you do you find like uh, like an apple juice would work well for that? Oh yeah, I mean I think it's it's justifiably one of those things for a lot of my clients who have a tendency to have like uh, blood sugar lows during training. Uh, apple juice has always been the one that seems to sustain a lot a lot longer. Um, and they don't have those sudden drops that could possibly happen in training with it. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Might have to try apple juice. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, give it a shot. It's <laughs> My son should be huge then. He right. takes apple <laughs> You just got to sprinkle a little bit of E-Amino Max in his apple juice there. Right, right. <laughs> um, we got another question here from Alex. I'm sure this is more typical of people. Um that talk to trainers, they want to know. He says, I need to gain some size in my chest. What should I be focusing on? Um, well, realizing, I mean, I know, and this is like, of course, for most guys, it's always a big, the big question. Um, you know, I always like breaking down the uh, the anatomy of like, the, you know, pectoralis major, minor muscle, and realizing that the bulk of your pec development is going to be in the upper chest area. Uh, so I always say focusing on movements, not necessarily from a flat base, but from like a 30 to like a 30 to 60 degree uh, incline is ideal. And I say if he focuses at least 60 to 70% of his train uh, hitting those type of like uh, incline levels and stuff, that would actually put a lot more emphasis on the bigger part of his chest. Um, you know, people always say, oh, how, you know, sometimes you, know, you always get questions on how you develop your lower chest. Well, technically, we don't have a lower chest. We only have pec major, pec minor muscle. Technically, lower chest comes with conditioning as you kind of lean out. That's what's going to happen. Uh, so if we're trying to add more bulk as far as into our you know chest in terms of our pec development, then yeah, upper chest is going to be your main area you're hitting. So then, just to that was always a, a weak part of mine. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, I think that I think that's kind of a like I don't know an, an accepted thought now, right? That start mm. with incline focus on incline mm -hmm. no one's ever yeah. had too big of an upper chest um but i guess what are your thoughts on on decline i don't know if it, i feel and i could be completely wrong so correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like dorian was kind of a proponent of decline um mm. what i mean what are your do you, do you find any use in that and then i guess to kind of second up that question just because it's decline doesn't necessarily mean it's hitting just the lower chest per se right i mean it's still probably going to aid in total pec development and arguably well i guess it would be a shorter range of motion but maybe mm -hmm. arguably you can put higher resistance since you're in a stronger position do you find value in, in decline um I, I wouldn't take anything from it now do i have it you know do i involve it in my routines no i don't um uh, just simple fact because a lot of times to me it's a safety uh, in a decline position, we do put more stress on the rotator cuff. It does shorten the range, and we do can we can put more resistance, but at the same time, there's more risk of injury as well. Um, you got to imagine: Have you ever seen someone who loses on a decline bench? It's not a fun sight, uh, you know, because of course, if you're in a decline barbell, they lose it. What? Where is the bar going to go? It's going to go to mm -hmm. their head, their neck. Uh, I've seen injuries from that a lot more too, because I've seen people go too heavy, and of course they they lose control, and that something can happen. Um, so it's not something that I would ever recommend for a team base. Uh, now, granted, yes, can you get you know can you work your chest? You still can work your chest. You get still can work tech development uh, in that position. Um, is it probably going to be as beneficial uh, as a flatter incline? I'm going to say probably not as much. Um, so. And you and you find in your experience that decline can put the shoulder and rotator cuff in a more precarious position than like an incline. Yeah, a lot more. Um, and just realizing that angle in that position and how the shoulder mobility is and what what the, the weaker areas of the shoulder, uh, a decline would put a lot more added pressure. Um, that's just saying even saying the same thing as someone doing the weighted dip. Um, most people who have 
shoulder injuries and a chest movement sometimes is from a dip position too. So got it. Interesting. All right. Well, this last one, I'm going to bump Chris's question for my own. I have a wedding in 44 days. It's mine. And uh, what is your best cardio protocol? I know like, so I used to always do fasted cardio every Mm -hmm. morning. Um, But I know some people are like, you you don't need like, that's not the best form, you know, hit or whatever. If you had 44 days to get somebody in great shape for their wedding, what cardio protocol would you, would you suggest? I would be more uh, positioned at doing HIT uh, as a cardio base. Um, uh, say HIT with interval. And what I'm saying with interval being like, okay, well, uh, doing where you're kind of in a position where, say, for instance, you go and do an overcoming bike and you're doing, we're doing 12 minutes of HIT. Uh, 40 seconds of that per, or doing intervals of 40 seconds where you're going all out as much as you can and then doing a 20 second rest, complete rest. And then doing that for say, hey, uh, those rotations per minute. I think you'll you'll do is you'll end up, you know, pretty much increasing your metabolism a lot more during that, and then also in you know increasing what your metabolic output's going to be even after you're done. Because you imagine even doing hit, your heart rate's still going to be sustainable, and it's going to be probably above a certain certain rate for a long period of time even after you're done. So you're technically still burning mm-hmm. calories even after. Um, so I feel hit is more beneficial and even when i did my first competition um i ever did uh actually i did only hit and i did what i did in the morning time i would do uh 16 minutes hit cardio in the morning um and usually i would still have uh a meal uh before uh because hits pretty intense pretty taxing uh my focus was not want to put too much stress in my body so I would do a small, like 200 to 200 calorie based meal before I would do hit. Usually 30 minutes before I would do hit in the morning, and then I would do hit post training. And my hit was usually like 10 to 12 minutes hit. So even through my prep, through that prep, I I didn't go above 30 minutes of hit per day. And honestly, I felt like my results were probably some of the best results in terms of losing body fat during that time. Of course, as I got older uh, and was getting more involved in competing. I felt like doing fasting, you know, moderate intensity or lower intensity would be beneficial. But I think after looking back, uh, my body handled the hit uh, better for me. Well, uh, and, and there's that, there's that, you know, bodybuilder mentality um, that you know, you know, <clears throat> you want to avoid uh, muscle catabolism, muscle loss at all costs. So. You know, don't go above two on the treadmill and put it at a full incline and do it for, you know, an hour because you just don't want to lose muscle. I mean, do, do you think that's dramatically overstated? Do you think oh, short heavily? <laughs> yeah. Do you think short bursts of hit would be far superior than worrying about the minute potential of, of muscle loss from going too intense? Oh, yeah. I mean, you just like I always say, use the prime example, look at a marathon runner versus a sprint runner. <laughs> so yeah. sprint yeah. runners of course sure. in a very very much of a you know anaerobic state they're pushing and they're doing definitely more of a hit based cardio when they're actually doing their sprints and runs you look at a marathon runner yeah they can run you know miles and miles but at a you know maybe a lower intensity but look at the muscle density and muscle mass on that sprint you know and so um, then and- so, i was saying so then you could almost take into the idea 
of the complete opposite, which is, you know, the bodybuilder wants to say, okay, well, you know, you got to do that low intensity cardio. You don't want to go too intense because you don't want to, um, you know, burn up any muscle tissue, but doing a heavy workout that stimulates the tissue, that's Mm -hmm. totally fine. Well, then would, would, you know, heavy, you know, sprints and eight and uh, high intensity interval training, wouldn't that be activating muscle tissue uh, in itself in the first place? And that's why, you know, to your point, you see sprinters with pretty, you know, substantial leg size because the, the, the cardio in itself is actually uh, stimulating uh, uh, muscle growth to some degree uh, versus mm-hmm. the general thought, which is, no, it's actually just putting you in a state where you're actually going to be burning up muscle tissue. Yeah. I think, you know, I think the concept of, of course, like a lot of the, you know, the old school thought of bodybuilding and stuff too, is I think sometimes when you carry so much muscle and of course you build on this muscle tissue, uh, is to say also the same time as like, yeah, the seeing a bodybuilder probably doing a full on sprint on a treadmill is going to be scary because it's a lot of muscle on, you know, a treadmill that, you know, could probably be susceptible to like maybe possible injury too. So a lot of times I think with the, that steady state, that modern intensity is also more of also, okay, I don't want to hurt myself either doing cardio. Um, so, and, cause, and that, so that's understandable as well. Cause of course you, know, you can imagine a big Rami at 300 pounds doing a full sprint on treadmill. It's probably not going to be pretty, you know, and it's probably going to be hard on his body versus some guy who could be like, he could be a 200 pound, very lean, very athletic. He's more mobile, got more flexibility, and yeah, he can sustain that, and he can, he can do a hit form on a treadmill and be okay. So, yeah, but then even even in the Rami situation, I mean, it would just have to be a modified hit. You know, maybe he doesn't do a full sprint, but maybe he goes up to three and a half to four on an incline treadmill for a minute, right? Mm-hmm. Gets a, a pretty a pretty yeah. brisk walk, and then drops it back down to two and relaxes mm-hmm. for thirty seconds. Um, something like that you, you believe would probably be beneficial to just setting it at two and just going for an hour. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's the other thing you have to modify it because of course, you know, with that person, I mean, their metabolic outputs could be a heck of a lot higher, even at a lower speed and just because of what they're carrying on the train. So yeah. Got it. Interesting. I feel like I learned a few things today. <laughs> that was the intent. Right? Yeah, definitely. I always definitely, I can always say I'm always learning for sure. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that wrapped that. That was all the questions uh, we had, Derek. Yes, sir. Cool. Well, Trey, we appreciate you coming on. It was definitely educational and insightful um, and definitely kind of a change of pace for, for Derek because we've been doing mostly like supplement industry people. Um, so it was nice to kind of get into the more bodybuilding side of it, which is to be quite honest, how, you know, I got into supplements. I'm, that's how Derek got into supplements. I think it's how a lot of people got even got interested in supplements. So getting the chance to really, you know, pick your brain in terms of, you know, some of the, the bodybuilding um, topics definitely was uh, was fun. So we appreciate you coming on, and we'll definitely have to have you on uh, again sometime soon. Oh, I appreciate you guys having me on too. Yeah, of course. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate everybody listening in. Um, stay tuned for our next episode, which should be coming out later in the end of January. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Josh. All right, buddy.